Amen, amen. Worthy as a lamb. Worthy as a lamb. As you take a look at the, the slide, this is what I'm going to call one of my signature slides. It's one that I generally share with you when I bring the message. And I hope that that's your motif, that you say to yourselves that West Highland is your family. It's your home away from home. It, it's where you belong. And that you resonated with the psalmist this morning when you got up and said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Amen. And then uh, here's one that I've been putting up for probably over a year. And just a personal invitation where you take a picture of it with your cell phone and send a text message. You don't even have to make a phone call. And just text it to friends and relatives and acquaintances and invite them to West Highland. Now, if you don't have your cell phones out and able to do that, there will be some of these uh, posted out around where in the narthex where you can simply take a picture of it or take it home and mail it, whatever, whatever works out for you. And then you know my recipe for doubling the size of the church, don't you? You remember I talked about uh, all kinds of uh, ways and thousands of dollars of seminary classes and books and tapes and CDs on evangelism and outreach. Two words. Two words. Bring someone. And who's going to invite us if you don't? I read some research this week that said that 73% out of one, uh, 73 out of 100 people that you would invite would come to church. So think about that as, as we uh, continue on. Well, I, I like signs. I like church signs. I saw that one, thought, honk, uh, tithe if you love Jesus. Anyone can honk. But then people that like, uh, who is it, Maxine, uh, say, yeah, go ahead and honk if you love Jesus. Text if you want to meet him. <laughs> Our time together, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and Advent is four Sundays, and the first Sunday of Advent, the the theme is hope, and hope, uh, we've got hope, peace, uh, joy, love, and light, and I thought it might be interesting if we took hope as our theme, and I don't have it in writing for you because I just got it finished yesterday, but developed a responsive reading, and so I'm going to ask you to read the red, I'll read the green, so if you would follow along here. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The evil man has no future, and the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the Holy Spirit. We wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for that fine reading. Also want to thank the praise team. They do such a fantastic job every week in putting together praise hymns for us. want to also thank the individuals in the sound booth that uh, make it so that you can hear and see what's going on in the service. And this morning, I have uh, chosen a title, Names and More Names. And as you turn in your Bibles, I'm not going to put the scripture on the screen this morning. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. And we'll take a look at the first 17 verses. And if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, I invite you to take one out of the pew rack in front of you, and you will find it on page 729. And as you're turning in your Bibles, I thought I might share with you a little background, a little bit of information here. And as after the close of the Old Testament, after the book of Malachi, we have four centuries, 400 years and no word from God. And so here we pick up the action where Lord comes back into the Hebrew lives and begins. And how would you open up a New Testament with uh, something from the Lord that you hadn't heard for 400 years? I don't know about you, but I would not have done it this way. Good thing I'm not, good thing I'm not in charge there, huh? And uh, what would he say? And I thought I might share with you that Matthew's gospel begins with 17 verses of 46 named genealogy. And after 2,000 years, 42 generations that we're talking about here. And the genealogy in verse 1 with the mention of Christ. And it ends in verse 17 with the mention of Christ. You may remember Matthew. And uh, Matthew was a tax collector. And they were despised by the Jewish community for collecting taxes, maybe taking a little off the top and, and whatever. But Matthew is one of the first disciples that Jesus called. And he quotes the Old Testament more often than any other New Testament author. And to the surprise of many, Christ is not Jesus' last name. You know that, right? Not his last name. And it, it comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. And we have Messiah in the Old Testament and Messiah. And so it's Jesus the anointed one, or Jesus the Messiah. And uh, the New Testament begins with the coming of Jesus. And the New Testament ends in Revelation with the coming of Jesus, in which what we're doing now is looking forward to the second advent. The Jews in first century and before, looking for the first advent. Jesus has come. If you would follow along in your Bibles, beginning with verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Now I'll pause there for a second. You might take a look at that in the flow of things. It says son of David first, doesn't it? Instead of Abraham. But it's actually backwards in the events and sequence of the Old Testament. And what we've got here is it, Jesus is uh, going to be a Jew. That's a given. But the important thing is, is the Messiah from the line of David. So that's why it's listed here first. And those opening words where it says the record of the genealogy. Genealogy in Greek means Genesis. And so I thought it was interesting that the Lord begins the Old Testament with the book of Genesis. And here in the New Testament, we begin with the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Well, let's go on. And uh, some of you are probably wondering who I'm going to call on to come up and read these words and these names but I'll, I'll take a stab at it here. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, and Pharaoh the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now we'll pause there just for a moment for me to catch my breath, but why did Matthew say Uriah's wife instead of calling her by the name Bathsheba? And I'm going to make a speculation here. We're not told... Uh, but if you know anything about the history here of what's taking place, I think Matthew is trying to get us to remember the tragedy that took place with David and uh, betrays his friend, sleeps with his friend's wife, and has his friend murdered. And so let, let's continue. Uh, Solomon, verse 7, Solomon the father of Reboam, and Reboam the father of Abiah, and Abiah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Saathiel, and Saathiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Zadak, Zadak the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. I think it's interesting as we take a look, we got one more verse, but I think it's interesting as we take a look at these verses, we have something that says, and so-and-so was the father of this person, and this person was the father of this person all the way until we get to Mary. And Joseph is not talked about as being the father, and uh, I think we all understand that. And Jesus was the name given to Joseph and uh, by the angel. And so when Joseph named Jesus, became Jesus then became his adopted son. 
And so we have that information. In verse 17, Thus there were fourteen generations in all from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ. May the Lord add the reading to His Word this morning, and you might say, what the heck? How are we beginning something like this for Christmas and entering into the Advent season? Good question. Good, uh, good thinking here. And we'll see if we can bring it all together. But I, I might share with you that as you take a look at these names that we just read, there are some that's left out. And I don't know why. Bible doesn't tell us why Matthew did that. But there are several generations. I think there's three in one uh, here that's not mentioned. And so, but the names that are listed are what God wanted. And uh, we can also take a look, if you take a look in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, you find another genealogy. This one goes from Jesus all the way back to Adam. Our text today goes from Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, to Jesus. And some think, some scholars think that the one in Luke is Mary's lineage. And there's support for that posture, but scholarship is divided. They just simply don't know. And so as we think about those things, uh, it's actually a fun passage, I think, because you look at this and you say, huh, maybe kind of let down after I read the names. What can we draw from all of this? But God's Word is inspired, and I read this and I love this phrase, there's always food for the hungry. Always food for the hungry. And you might call our text today the neglected text, or at least a, I thought of that way in a Christmas story. It's a genealogy. And it's a portion of Scripture that we tend to, tend to skip over. I don't know about you, but when we take a look at the Christmas story in Matthew, we see the genealogy. Let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to, let's get to stuff like Bethlehem and the angels, Mary and Joseph, no room for the inn and the innkeeper dialogue. You remember that. The stable, the wise men, the gifts and shepherds and the star and so much more as we think about the Christmas season. But the Jews of the first century and before would have been quite surprised at, at our uh, connection here because genealogy um, is, is fundamental. It is something that is, um, is, is of uh, paramount importance to them. And uh, because if Jesus is not the fulfillment, you know, we've, we've got these, uh, I've got to back up for a minute, but um, at, at first we might think, well, I don't know what you might think, but we've got a Davidic covenant, we have an Abrahamic covenant, and we have a covenant with the exiles, and we'll touch base with there. And so how does this story 2,000 years ago impact us today? And today I want to talk about uh, the past, the promises, prophecy, and plan. And as we take a look at the past, Jesus' life and these names, they're rooted in the past. Jesus had grandparents. He had aunts and uncles. He had brothers and sisters. And, uh, uh, but we would also have people that say, this ancestry, this genealogy, this Christmas tree, this family tree would uh, disqualify him because their thinking is, but we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Some of the Jews thought, well, 
he's just going to suddenly appear like the gods of uh, Olympus, Zeus and what have you, Superman, come from place. You're not going to know. You mean God is not going to have a family, but they did not consult the genealogical records in Jerusalem. Do you remember when Joseph took Mary um, and Jesus to Egypt? An angel said to do that because Herod was seeking uh, Jesus' life. And they get down to Egypt, and then Herod dies, and the angel reappears and says, okay, it's time to come back to Israel. And uh, he, having been warned again, because Archelaus, Herod's son, was reigning, and so Joseph was uh, again cautioned. And he says, the Bible says, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Well, everyone in that area, in the area of Galilee and Capernaum, knew where Jesus was from. They knew he was a carpenter's son. They knew all about his life, so how could he be Messiah? And uh, here is something that they also said. How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Well, again, all they've got to do is go back to Jerusalem to the temple, and they can find all the records. And the religious leaders did a poor job of teaching and training the people about these things and genealogy. And the Jews routinely paid close attention to genealogy, but why they didn't hear, we don't know, because whenever land was bought or sold, they had to check the record to make sure that the land was not being sold outside of tribal and ancient boundaries, thus destroying the integrity of, of the genealogy. In other words, you had to prove uh, where your ancestors came from before you could make these kind of transactions. Genealogy applies to our Christmas story. All of you know the story where it says in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to his own town to register. That meant each person needed to know their genealogy. And uh, if they didn't know it, check it out, because they were required to do this. Now, it's also important, I thought I might bring this up, that... Uh, Everybody could tell their genealogy, their line, until 70 A.D. What happened in 70 A.D.? Well, the Roman emperor Titus came in, destroyed the temple, and it's where the Sanhedrin kept all these genealogical records. So all the records were destroyed. I was talking with a rabbi friend uh, this week, uh, Jerry Weinstein, over in Congregation Shemai Israel in Wald Lake, and we were talking about this very thing. And he said, because the temple has been destroyed and the records have been destroyed, there is no individual out there today that can claim Messiahship because they can't claim their records back to David. Jesus Christ is the last person that was able to do that. I thought I might do a sidebar here for a second. Do you remember in Genesis where in chapter 12, I think it's verse 3 where it says, uh, I will bless uh, you and those nations that uh, bless you. I'll bless them. I'll curse those who curse you. You can't mess with the Jewish people and not, and not uh, have the wrath of God come down upon you and have retribution. 
when Titus came in in 70 AD, nine years later in Italy, we have Mount Vesuvius blows up, a volcano, and it covers ash, 13 to 20 feet of ash all over and buries a city by the name of Pompeii. And Pompeii was a very wealthy city where uh, the wealthy of the wealthiest came, and it's my opinion that God, this is retribution and wrath upon, upon uh, them. Well, it's not unusual to take a look at a book of genealogy. All of you know Josephus, right, that great Jewish historian. Well, Josephus begins his autobiography with a genealogy. It's also important if you go back to 1 Chronicles, you will find the first nine chapters is just one solid genealogy. You know, the one we just read here this morning, a lot of powerful names there, and, and uh, uh, you, you might hold that in high regard, or the Jews, and very powerful individuals. You might be saying, we're looking at the best of the best. We're looking at the all-star team here in uh, this genealogy. And some of them were great pillars of faith, and, uh, but others, not so much. And we're going to talk about those in just a minute. Jesus' genealogy is rooted in a few promises. Do you remember the uh, promise that uh, God made Abraham? God told Abraham, I will make unto you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And then look at the last line there. All people will be blessed through you. And then a little bit later on in Genesis 22, and through your offspring, all nations of earth will be blessed. Do you remember um, the miraculous birth of Isaac in the Old Testament? This is kind of a foreshadow of the miraculous birth of Jesus in the New Testament, a fulfillment of God's promise. How about the promise of David? And here's what God says to David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. That's talking about Christ. And then how about the exiles? There were some promises to the exiles. Isaiah says these words, and you're more familiar with these kind of passages for Christmas. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That was a promise to the exiles. And then Isaiah further says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom forever. So Jesus is ultimately the fulfilling promise of Abraham. Jesus is a fulfilling promise of David. And Jesus is a fulfilling promise to the exiles through Isaiah. You know, Jesus, uh, this genealogy, God had a plan. God always has a plan. And Jesus had a family. And mother and father who adopted him and he was real. And sometimes the Jewish people didn't think that way. But if we study these names in detail, it's almost as if God had pulled together some notable failures. Now, there were some great ones that we read those, but some notable failures. For instance, Abraham lied twice about his wife, Sarah. And Isaac did the same thing. Jacob was a cheater. Judah was a fornicator involved in incest. 
David was an adulterer and murderer, and Solomon was a polygamist, and Manasseh reigned 55 years, and he was an evil king. He was guilty of immorality, practiced every conceivable evil and perversion, the Bible says, devoted himself to witchcraft, murder, even sacrificed his sons to a pagan god, and we could go on and on and on. But the idea is not to go through and, and define those things, but just simply to say they existed, had a messy genealogy. And I'm willing to bet that if you went back to three or four generations or even more, that you might have some stuff in your genealogies. Suppose you have a cousin that is a, a governor of Michigan, or you pick your favorite president, and you had a family member in the president's cabinet. Uh, chances are you would probably mention those with a certain amount of pride. But let's say your cousin is Billy the Kid, or that your uncle is Jesse James, or your great-great-granddaddy was uh, John Wilkes Booth. Probably you're not going to mention those facts. You're not going to be too impressed with that. But Matthew didn't do that. Matthew listed them all. And in addition to the uh, low and moral fiber of these things, there's something else that's very peculiar about this, and that is Matthew listed five women. And if you uh, asked any Jew, how many women are in the genealogy? They'd say very few or none. That's how important women were back that time. And, uh, but if they were, you'd say, well, we've got Sarah, We've got uh, Rebecca, we've got Rachel and Leah. Those were wives of the patriarchs. That's who you'd expect to find, but what do we have in today's genealogy? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And we've got Mary, but that, that special category, I'll talk about that. With my conversation with my good friend, uh, Rabbi Jerry Weinstein, here is something that he shared with me about uh, men Jewish men, and something in a prayer book that they say it's not biblical. It's not, but it is something that is what we call tradition. And they say these words, Blessed are you, O God, the King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, nor a woman. And so, we think, and so ladies, uh, Jesus breaks down that barrier. Aren't we glad we don't live back in that system? And, uh, but we have these, these uh, women, and I want to talk about those, but I want to give you a foundation that I really want to leave you with, and you know it, uh, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. <laughs> That's what we need to take away from today. But uh, let's take a look at Tamar. And Tamar uh, is found in 38th chapter of Genesis. I'm not going to plow all that ground this morning, but let's just say this, that she was um, Judah's daughter-in-law, had married uh, his oldest son, Ur, and uh, he died. Onan uh, becomes the husband. He dies, and Tamar is not going to sit around and wait for the next husband to come along. So she takes the matters into her own hands, and she and Judah commit an ancestral relationship. And uh, what we know about that is Judah and Tamar are in Jesus' genealogy that we read this morning. How about Rahab? 
the second woman mentioned. Most of us know more about her. She's always mentioned by a certain name. You know what that is? Rahab the what? Harlot. Rahab the harlot. But she was also a Canaanite, an enemy of Israel. And uh, her extraordinary deed was that she told a lie. She told a lie. And uh, it's tied in with uh, Jericho, Joshua, and that business. I'm not going to cover all of that. But in the end, being a Canaanite, being of her, her uh, uh, profession, and lying, we say, how could she be in Jesus' lineage? But she is. And what do we normally think about in Hebrews 11.31 when we have this? By faith. By faith, Rahab. By faith, Rahab. That's all that matters. She had faith. And then uh, we take a look at Ruth. Ruth, again, was a Moabite. You remember where the Moabites came from, don't you? The Moabites came from, and Ammonites came from when Lot and his wife and daughters escaped from Sodom and Gomorrah. Wife turned into salt, Lot's wife. Daughters and Lot go and, uh, in a cave, and let's just put it this way, uh, ancestral relationship there, and it resulted in two boys. One was the Ammonites, one was the Moabites, and they were, they were just rotten to the core, evil, and hated enemies of Israel. And so we have Ruth coming from the Moabites. What's the Bible say about Moabites? No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the tenth generation. How about Bathsheba? Bathsheba is not mentioned by name in our genealogy today. However, it's clear because she's the wife of Uriah. And by the way, did you know that in all of Scripture, Bathsheba is never called David's wife? Bathsheba is always called the wife of Uriah. And uh, before the scandal was over, we had uh, a royal cover-up and ultimately murder and uh, so we just leave it right there. You know the story. Mary. Well, we can't say anything bad about Mary. Here's a Jewish lady. However, in Mary's situation, her out-of-wedlock pregnancy gave her a reputation that fits the lives of some of the women we just talked about. And uh, so four unlikely women, all Gentiles, and three of them involved in some sexual immorality, incest, prostitution, adultery. And what do they have in common? They're all in the lineage of Jesus. They're all in the lineage. Now, why would God include all of that? Well, not for the sake of what they have in common with Jesus, but I think included for us. So that we know that that doesn't make any difference in the scheme of things. In Jesus, we are all one. And uh, in Matthew's genealogy, we see that God used many individuals who were not perfect to advance his kingdom. Well, what's the application this morning? Well, all of us have a genealogy, right? We all got a genealogy, and we can't trace it, but we know where it ends, don't we? Our genealogy, if we go back far enough, it connects with Adam and Eve. Now, that's not a good thing. Because what happened? We have original sin. We have original sin which affects everyone in the family tree, including all of us. Well, how do we deal with that? 
How do we deal with that? I think we need to look at, at what God's plan is here. That's what Christmas is all about, right? Part of God's plan. Jesus is the reason for the season. You've heard that phrase. I'm going to interject something else here in just a few minutes. But as we think about God's plan, I, I've included something here called the Romans Road. And I have some copies of this out on the table in the narthex, but it begins with simply, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why? Through Adam. And then we have 623, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And Romans 5, 8, but God commanded his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, where it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And the very last one, Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then, of course, why did Jesus come? Why did God send him? Because he loved the world. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, only son, that we might have life and not perish. And how about 2 Peter 3, 9, where it says, God is not willing that any should perish and has offered us the free gift of life. Jesus Christ came, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and he's a fulfillment of all of God's promises. And he extends the promise of salvation and eternal life to all who believe in him. But you have to accept that. You have to accept God's grace. It doesn't matter what we've done. You could take a look at all the genealogy that we just read. A lot of stuff there, a lot of messy stuff. But the deal is that all you have to do is simply say and commit your life to the Lord Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Offer confession and repentance of, of sin. So it's not what you've done. It's not who you are that makes any difference. Uh, all that matters is, is that Jesus, I think, wants you to bring Messiah into the hearts and lives of people today. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your relatives. Maybe it's your acquaintances. And the question is, are we available and abandoned to our to our will, to his perfect will, that his perfect will and way might flow through each of us. And just like God used Matthew to bring Jesus into the world, God wants to use each of us with our flaws, our imperfections, our shortcomings, our sinful attitudes, and our rotten behavior to bring Jesus to others. Jesus had a purpose for Matthew in the opening verses of chapter 1 that we just read. And the Lord wanted Matthew to bring Jesus through a genealogy. How is the Lord using you to bring the message of Christ to others? You know, well, oftentimes we say Jesus is the reason for the season. And that's true. Absolutely. Amen. But then this week as I was preparing for the message, another thought came into my consciousness. And it's this, I'm the reason that he came. I'm the reason that it was necessary. But I don't want us to focus this season on us because it's all about Jesus, right? All about Jesus. But I do think we have to subconsciously hear, hmm, why was it all necessary? Me, my sin. 
and he came for each and every one of us. Would you, would you pray with me? Almighty God, we, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. And Lord, as we think about why this was necessary, I just, I just bow with humble heart. And I cannot even imagine the sacrifice. Can't imagine that. Coming to earth. Leaving heaven. But that's what your son did because you loved us so much that you were willing to die for our sins and our place just so that we could have eternal life with you. So we thank you. In the name of Christ, amen.